Welcome to the Podcast of Ideas. I'm David Bowden, and this week I speak to Institute of Ideas Associate Fellow Dolan Cummings about whether there is still a need for racial equality laws. We'll hear Rob Lyon's speech from this week's policy exchange event on childhood obesity. And Spike's assistant editor, Tom Slater, comes in to tell Rob about the Down With Campus censorship campaign. Comments by UKIP leader Nigel Farage about Britain's anti-discrimination laws made headlines last week. In an interview recorded for a Channel 4 documentary, he argued that there should be a presumption for British employers in favour of them employing British people as opposed to somebody from Poland. Responding to the comments, Labour Sadiq Khan claimed that repealing discrimination laws would enable employers or landlords to choose people based on the colour of their skin, though Farage later argued he was not talking about race at all, and that young British black people were worst affected by competition from Eastern Europeans. Underpinning the discussion is the assumption that race discrimination laws are effective and still necessary. Is that true? To discuss the issue, I'm joined by Dolan Cummings, Associate Fellow at the Institute of Ideas and co-convener of the Manifesto Club campaign group. So, Dolan, what did you make of Farage's comments? Did he have a point? think perhaps. So it's interesting he's backtracked to focus really on unemployment and, and British people versus Eastern Europeans. But I think actually the original comments opened up a, a more interesting debate, which is about the, the role of equality legislation more broadly, and whether we really do need laws to prevent employers, landlords and so on from discriminating on the basis of race. The assumption, and I think it was suggested by Sidiq Khan, is that without these laws, people would become rampantly racist and start discriminating all over the place. And I think that's probably not true. Uh, so I think it's probably worth assessing that as a society, um, um, rather than treating these kind of laws as sacred cows. But it's true that at some point these laws were necessary. I mean, obviously, when you think back to the 60s, when you had everything from the Tories in Smethwick and their election leaflets saying, if you want a nigger for a neighbour, vote Labour. The dockers supporting Enoch Powell, the famous signs of no blacks, no dogs, no Irish outside of pubs. I mean, there was a point when these laws were brought in for specific reasons. Well, it's certainly true that racism um, has historically been a a significant problem in Britain. Two questions I would raise about that are, firstly, whether it's still true, um, and secondly, whether it really was laws that made the difference. Um, I think um, we are a much less racist society than we were in the 1960s, for example, And that's not really been something that's been achieved by law. It's been achieved by anti-racist campaigns, by argument, and gradually by people deciding that racism doesn't make sense and we don't don't want to discriminate against people on the basis of of their colour. I think the argument, to a large extent, has been won. And it's an argument. It's not something that's established by law. But why do you think there was such enthusiasm for the Equality Act when it was brought in, which is still kind of held as being Labour's kind of last great achievement amongst kind of lefties, that's the kind of one last good thing they did. Why was there so, so much enthusiasm for that being brought in in the last couple of years? Sure, well the telltale there is for lefties. Um, I don't think there was great enthusiasm um, among the public. It wasn't that there were great mass demonstrations of people demanding more equality legislation. It's something that does occupy politically active people on the left who are always looking for something to be, to be crusading around. And it's interesting that for that type of, of person, it, 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 those are the people who would find it very difficult to accept that racism was less of a problem than it was. And that's true of almost any social problem. I think people on the sort of campaigning left find it very difficult to accept that progress has been made. They always want things to be getting worse, always demanding um, more legislation. And I think that's really misplaced. 
What was interesting is that in the documentary um, in which Farage's comments appeared, Trevor Phillips, you know, a long-time equality campaigner, did suggest that anti-racism was a misguided venture that has now turned into what he called an ugly doctrine. What do you think he's getting at there? Do you think he has a point? He does have a point. I mean, he's not really talking about anti-racism as in a belief in equality and an objection to discrimination and prejudice. I think that's a good thing, and it's fairly well established throughout society now. What he's talking about is the anti-racism industry, and in particular the, um, the, the, the way that industry tries to police speech and behaviour. And I think he, he was quite explicit in saying that you know the idea had been if you stop people saying racist things, then they would stop being racist. And I think he's right that that was completely wrong. That's why you know it's a similar point. It wasn't that the law that made people stop being racist. And it's not censorship that stops people being racist. If anything, the opposite. And I think what he's picking up on to some extent is also the fact that this anti-racism industry stirs resentment. People feel that they're being accused of racism all the time. And even if they're not remotely racist, that does um, aggravate people uh, and in a very unhelpful way. And finally, do you think that Farage has much of a, has much of a point when he says that discriminating on somebody based around nationality is not the same as racism as he understands it as we used to understand it it is different and you know he's he's perfectly fair point to make that there are uh, young black british people who are not getting jobs but the fact that it's not racist doesn't mean that's necessarily right i think that that discrimination on nationality is also objectionable in in, in various ways it's a different kind of argument i think it's it's not as straightforwardly moral that you can say i'm appalled that you you're anti-black people or chinese people because there you know there does seem more of a common sense idea of, of sticking up for our people from the same country but i think once you unpick that that there's a there's an argument to be had and i would i would argue that actually it's it's not it's not a good thing to discriminate on the basis of nationality even though it's not racist dolan cummings thank you very much thank you while perhaps less fraught and lower profile than in the past the issue of childhood obesity remains central to government health policy with claims that millions of children are going to grow up fat and unhealthy and die premature deaths. Rob Lyons, the Institute's Science and Technology Director, took part in a debate this week hosted by Policy Exchange, titled Is Childhood Obesity As Bad As We Think? The event was chaired by James Cracknell, the Olympic gold medal winning rower and author of a forthcoming report on the subject. The other panellists were Andrew Lansley, the former Health Secretary, Paul Gately, Professor of Exercise and Obesity at Leeds Metropolitan University, and William Bird, CEO of Intelligent Health. Here are Rob's opening comments. So I will briefly state what my opinion of these things are, throwing powder on the fire, as James said. First of all, I think we should observe that forecasts about childhood obesity and, more importantly, adult obesity have been way too high and led to a great deal of panic and anxiety about this issue. Secondly, the notion that obesity is some kind of death sentence is mistaken. Thirdly, there's no simple solution. I think other people have discussed that. Losing excess weight is by no means simple. If someone finds such a solution, as a fat man, I would like to know this secret. And fourthly, if we overstate the problem of future obesity, then we'll end up introducing bad policies that restrict freedom and autonomy with little benefit to either obese kids 
or wider society. So first of all, the exaggeration of the problem, at least going forward. This was particularly bad about 10 years ago. This is the era when Jamie Oliver was doing uh, his school meals program, and he was coming out with some really wild claims that children would die before their parents, that fat, constipated kids could end up literally vomiting their own faeces, that poor school meals were somehow responsible for bad behaviour or a rise in asthma. Other shows like this, uh, you had most famously You Are What You Eat with the the misnamed Dr. Gillian McKeith, uh, Fat Nation, Fat Club, Celebrity Fat Club, and most pertinently here, Honey, We're Killing the Kids. People have touched on the, the, the stats already. I mean, if you look at the Health Survey for England, for example, the figures for childhood obesity seem to plateau around about 2004, and they've gone down a little bit, and they've kind of bumped along markedly lower than they were back then. Other uh, surveys and other measurements suggest different things, and as has been pointed out, this could be partly because some families have got skinnier just as other families have got fatter, and those two things are balancing themselves out at the moment. But certainly the idea of this like nationwide obesity time bomb seems to be overstated. And the same with adult obesity. That seemed to peak, at, according to the Health Survey for England, in about 2010. It's kind of bumped along without going, going very much. Even in America, actually, there seems to have been a plateauing of the obesity rates Compare that with what the Foresight Report said in 2007. It said by 2025, 40% of Britons could be obese, um, and that seems highly implausible now, and by 2050, that more than half the population would be obese, as Andrew said. And I think that that's just just highly unlikely to happen. Uh, There's plenty of nuances, I'm sure, but I don't think there's any sign of that time bomb going off. The number of adults morbidly obese is just under 3%, and it's stayed that way for a, a little while now. Secondly, obesity is not the death sentence, and being obese is not a disease state in itself. If you look at the the curve of life expectancy according to body weight, then it's a U-shape. People who are very, very underweight and people who are very, very overweight have markedly shorter life expectancies. But there's a kind of bit in the middle between people who are normal weight, overweight, and very mildly obese, where life expectancies are very broadly the same, a year or two either way. And other kinds of differences, like being short or tall, or being a man or a woman, have impacts on life expectancy that are just as big as the variation in that group. Poverty is, uh, for example, a more important indicator of life expectancy than obesity, although they've clearly got quite strong relationship. Thirdly, the assumption seems to be that obesity is a preventable cause of illness, implying that there's some straightforward way to lose weight once you've gained it. Now, I used to be a painfully thin child uh, who gradually accumulated weight over adulthood, and I've tried every method under the sun, a loose stone or two, and then put it back on again just as quickly as I lost it. So, as I said, I'll be at the front of the queue if anybody comes up with a a surefire solution. But the idea that uh, government can kind of will people slim seems to me to be, well, mad, really. Which leads me to my fourth and, I think, most important point. Scare stories lead to bad policy. What we've seen as a result of that that scare about obesity is parents being threatened with having their kids taken away if they're very fat, and often parents don't have much control over the situation. Lunchboxes being inspected for contraband like crisps or chocolate, or even the idea that school meals should be compulsory regardless of parental wishes. Health trusts refusing treatment to obese patients, takeaway food shops being refused the right to trade, demands for fat taxes or sugar taxes... Even the school curriculum is being colonised by this issue now. One friend of mine told me of her shock when her daughter had been given an exercise in her English class to write a poem about obesity. I mean, of all the things we want kids to learn in English class, it's not about obesity. Kids, kids being weighed 
actually is not a bad idea in terms of generally monitoring the situation. But the, 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 the letter home and the way that's communicated is actually counterproductive. God knows what food and body shape obsessions we're creating in the next generation. And much of this is driven by the misleading claim that the NHS will be bankrupted by obesity-related diseases. Actually, if you really want to go down that route, you want to have that terrible calculus uh, you know, of, of, of saying who costs the state more in the long run, then actually smokers are doing us the biggest favour of all because they'll die long before they'll need pensions or you know, lots of social care. Obese people, if the, it is true about life expectancy being shorter, are into mean. And actually, it's the non-smoking, skinny people who are actually going to cost the state the most in the long run. It's just true. They're going to live longer and they're going to require more services. Andrew used the, the phrase regime. I'm sure he didn't mean it like this, but I kind of associate the word regime with Latin America in the 1970s. And I think what we need is actually a more humane approach to the, the problem. That For most people, carrying a bit of spare tyre or being mildly obese makes little difference to their lives or to their life expectancy. But for the minority of the population that Paul was really focusing on, and I do agree here that it's a very substantial problem, Excess weight becomes a barrier to being active in the world and has a very strong connection to chronic disease. So we need to be, focus our efforts on the medical care and treatment of those people rather than having this scattergun approach that we have at the moment. And a more open-minded research effort that, about finding the causes of obesity and diabetes um, with, with suggestions that go beyond eating less and moving more. If we do have to have social interventions, let's have ones that provide opportunities, that have no regrets policies, that, so that even if they have, make no difference to anybody's weight, they provide more opportunities for a fuller life. So, for example, giving children more opportunities to play independently will allow them to develop relationships and mature as people, regardless of whether they lose weight or not. The same with children's independent mobility. I'm very glad our timekeeper here is Maya Hillman, who has been looking at this issue for 40 years. And one of the things we agree, we, we agree, we disagree about a lot of things, but we agree, agree very much about the, the importance of this thing. Again, regardless of whether kids lose a pound in weight or not, because being able to travel independently certainly has the benefit of giving children self-reliance, resilience, you know, the ability to, to act as independent people as early as they can in their lives. I think that kind of uh, approach, one that, that, that's not focused on bands, on lectures, on whatever, but creating opportunities will be more successful at helping people live their lives. And, uh, and, and in the meantime, let's focus on that relatively small percentage of people have a really serious problem with obesity. They're the people that really need their help. Once upon a time, students were at the forefront of demanding free speech. Last year marked the 50th anniversary of the free speech movement at the University of California at Berkeley. The idea that certain things should not be talked about was the preserve of the conservative establishment. The 60s radicals demanded that everything was up for grabs. Nothing should be banned. Everything should be questioned. But now universities seem to be more obsessed with stifling free speech than promoting it. Free speech codes and safe spaces abound. Tom Slater has been coordinating a project for the online magazine Spiked, providing the first ever free speech university rankings for the UK, and is now speaking around the country on the Down With Campus Censorship Tour. Tom, what inspired the idea of the free speech rankings? 
So the issue of free speech on campus was something that Spike's been very much involved with for many years, long before me or most of my colleagues on the rankings even knew what UCAS was. Um, but it was something that around last year, it was something we decided to get very serious about. We launched our campaign down with campus censorship and toured around universities. And one thing that we found was that censorship was not only becoming more and more rife, the bans becoming more ridiculous as well as more widespread, but there was more resistance against it. For the first time, in, it felt like quite a while there was a large amount of students who recognised that this was ridiculous, recognised it was a liberal and wanted to do something about it but there was still not a clear sense of what they could do and where they could really take their universities to task. So the aims of the rankings were really twofold. The first was to create that kind of institutional challenge in the same way with other university rankings we wanted to say to them there's someone now who is checking up on this sort of thing and if your prospective students who come to university wanting to get involved in debates, wanting to get involved in student politics might look at it and and think otherwise but also to tool up those students to give the people who are in universities agitating against this that weight of evidence they really need to push for change on their own campuses. So the aim was really to get more involved in this issue but also try and play our part in pushing for some change. Right okay and so how many different institutions did you cover? So we covered the entire swathe of UK universities and we ranked them using a traffic light system from red, amber and green, red being the most censorious, amber being interventionist and, and meddling and green being none of the above. And one thing that was really staggering was just the sheer scale of censorship we saw on that national level. We found that 80% of UK universities censor speech to some degree, and in fact 41% were red-ranked universities. They actively censored speech, they banned speakers, they outlawed newspapers. And I think it was really served as a bit of a wake-up call insofar as how far this had gone, the fact that we'd noticed it, not only in terms of a small clutch of universities, it wasn't individual groups of belligerent students, but it really was a national problem. I think that's something that we brought to light. Who's actually imposing these bans and restrictions? Is it the universities themselves or is it student unions? So, as you say, we looked at both universities and student unions in this, and I think the the first very clear insight is that student unions are by far at the forefront of instituting all of these bans. They're about five times more likely to be that red-ranked, actively censoring type of institution. But also just the number of bans are really proliferating. And I think one thing that's been really interesting is how that has kind of shifted In the past, it was very much that SUs were very at the forefront of instituting things like no-platform policy, so bans on extreme speakers, on members of the far right. But now, as you alluded to in your introduction, is the rise of this um, SU safe space type of censorship, which is really, really interesting, because it's not necessarily ideological. It's kind of free-floating. The way safe space policies work is that anything that has the potential to make students feel emotionally or even intellectually uncomfortable can mark them out for censorship and that's the big shift we've been seeing so not only is it the far right or even necessarily conservative individuals who are feeling the brunt of censorship as it was in the past but it's almost anything we've seen atheist groups told to leave their freshest fares for wearing um, t-shirts that depicted the prophet Muhammad, and more recently even feminists such as Jermaine Greer being blocked from speaking at the Cambridge Union so not only are student unions very much at the forefront of this but they're really piloting and running with this safe space model of censorship which is not ideological it really could go anywhere and it really justifies what we've been saying for a long time which is that as soon as you justify censorship in any aspect it really soon will spread and we're seeing that quite clearly now. Do they not have a point maybe that university is a, should be this kind of little kind of cloistered environment at which you kind of get your your head down and you read about 
philosophy or study or medicine or whatever why does free speech matter in that context mm-hmm. well, I think there's two aspects here so on, on the first point in terms of the intellectual side of university I think free speech is is paramount in, in academia first of all because how really can you pursue knowledge and how can you contest ideas if certain ones are just off the table if they're seen as too hot to handle too upsetting perhaps to to engage with I think that on a purely academic basis um, putting any restrictions on free speech will only really hold back that process of pursuing knowledge and contesting ideas. But I think this idea that universities in some sense, and particularly student unions, can be almost a little haven, really undermines the second role that universities have always played, and that's been within progressive student politics. And I think that the rise of these safe space policies are really holding that back. I mean, how can you change a world? How can you go out there and and push for something more progressive if you essentially try and hem yourself off from the big bad world? And at the same time, I think the rise of this kind of censorship really promotes a very low view of students. It says they're too vulnerable, too irrational perhaps, to even engage in politics. So I think the clampdown on free speech is a massive tragedy, not only academically, but politically. It says that on the one hand, you're not up to the job of contesting certain ideas, but also you're probably too vulnerable to take part in it in the first place. So I think that's the real tragedy there. So what's next in terms of your free speech campaigning? So we're, as you said, we're back out on the road with Down With Campus Censorship. Um, We've been to Oxford, Edinburgh, we're in Manchester this week, and we've also got debates coming up at LSE, King's College and um, Cardiff. And the focus for us at the moment is really to take the rankings as a research project, as a headline-grabbing challenge to universities, and take it to students, take it to the campuses that we've been assessing, and really try and play that role in pushing for some change there. Well, that sounds absolutely fantastic. Uh, Good luck with all that, and thanks very much for taking the time to drop in. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Podcast of Ideas. For more of our podcasts, and to subscribe to them, go to www.instituteofideas.com forward slash podcast. (laughs) 